quandum ubique, quandum semper, quandum ad omnibus creditor est, which means that magic is everywhere and all over the world. It's a recognized fact, always. Welcome once again to Won't Stay Dead, the podcast that looks at the murky world of cult and horror films. It's been absolutely <laughs> ages since we did our last podcast, so apologies to anyone um, who listens regularly, although that's probably not likely to be very many people, if anyone at all. Um, <laughs> I know one guy. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, here we are, we're back, and this episode we are looking at um, an absolute horror classic, probably one of the best films, or probably one of the most famous films actually that we've probably looked at so far. Um, Dario Argento's uh, 1977 gothic masterpiece, uh, Suspiria, uh, which was Paul's choice. I'd forgotten that it was my choice. It was so long ago. <laughs> yeah. So I guess briefly we'll um, we'll see what everyone's drinking tonight. Um, for anyone who doesn't usually listen, uh, we kind of bring beers or booze or whatever that's some, in some way related to the uh, the film at hand. Um, I'll start because I'm just on gin and uh, orange juice <laughs> I didn't want to buy any beer I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of trying to be on a diet and it's a Wednesday night and I've kind of had one of those pay packets where it's come in and then just gone you know because I've had to like buy flights home and I've had to pay for this and that so yeah I'm cheaping it on the gin and orange tonight lads what about you how does that relate to suspicion <laughs> um, it's not even red juice you could have done tomato juice Although it wouldn't have been nice, but at least it would have tied in in some way. Blood oranges? <laughs> there isn't really any way. It, there isn't really any way, is there? All right, well, we might as well just stop this then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. crazy pay. Three guys silently thinking about booze. Uh, well, I'm, I'm having a similar experience to you, Ian, um, <clears throat> in that I um, it's midweek and I'm sort of skint, so I'm not really drinking, but I do have a glass of... Uh, German Riesling and uh, film set in Germany and everybody in it is white so um, <laughs> and it is uh, it's rather dry the, the dialogue you could say is it's not even dry it's just wooden pretty good that's about as, as close as I could get I thought I had some really good ideas but then I didn't have the money to back them up so what, what are you young David uh, again, similar. So I'm on uh, strawberry and raspberry tea. <laughs> well, <at> least <laughs> that's it's red. red. <laughs> yeah. I, f- I forgot all my, all my wee bits at the start of the podcast. I didn't even introduce you guys. So yeah, across the Irish Sea is uh, David Anna. Oh, and Paul Doran, aka Chrissy P. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so obviously, uh, seem to be a bit, bit rusty tonight. But sure. Um, I guess we'll drink our various weird drinks and uh, come back and talk about Suspiria after this. It's useless to try and explain it to you. You wouldn't understand. It all seems so absurd. So fantastic. They are malefic, negative and destructive. Their knowledge of the art of the occult gives them tremendous powers. They can change the course of events and people's lives. 
Their goal is to accumulate great personal wealth, but that can only be achieved by injury to others. First Pat gets murdered by a madman, and now Daniel is killed by his dog. Yeah, maybe there's a hex on the place. Yeah, let's call in the exorcist and have a purge. Who is it? Who's there? <laughs> I've been expecting you. I knew you would come. You want to kill me? You want to kill the Rainer Marcus? <laughs> a powerful witch with a tremendous talent for doing evil. Real mistress of magic. Bad luck isn't brought by broken mirrors, but by broken minds. Paul, because it's your uh, choice, do you want to kind of start off by saying why you chose the film and, you know, when you first saw it? It was a film I saw a long time ago that I've always meant to rewatch, and I remember it being being very good. I, I think I remember reading about it before I ever saw it. I got... It was like when I was about 14 or 15, I got an Empire magazine on like a Halloween special and it had a top 50 horror movies to watch before you die or something uh, or before you're killed or whatever uh, it was. But uh, it either had a section on like Dario Argento or it just had like a lot of Argento movies listed and uh, Suspiria was the, the top, top rated one. And uh, I thought it... I love the sound. I never heard Goblin, but uh, I love the sound of a band called Goblin doing a, you know, the score. And I thought the idea sounded sounded pretty pretty cool. And uh, eventually, I got to see it maybe a couple of years later. And don't think I really appreciated it as much at the time as I, I should have done. Yeah, I'm glad I did choose it this time because it was good to revisit it, and really good to revisit that Goblin like soundtrack as well, which is, is something else like. Kind of reminded me, not exactly, it didn't really sound like it, but like the way it's constructed a wee bit like uh, Jodorowsky uh, kind of theme tunes, or kind of scores, you know, lots of sort of primitive instruments coming in weird textures and and like strange rhythms and then like lots of like vocals that aren't lyrical at all, you know. What did you think of like the opening murder scene when you first saw it? I'm not sure if it really made an impression on me the first time. This time it seemed a lot more brutal. <laughs> it seemed a lot uh yeah, a lot more shocking. I'm not sure if maybe just more sensitive to it, but um, I thought, Jesus, this movie is a lot more, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get through than I remember it being or I'm expecting, and it's not that it starts big and then sort of, you know, never really reaches that again, but, uh, or nearly does, but not quite. I think in, like, in the same sort of dynamic to Don't Go in the House, you know, starts absolutely in a shocking way and then just kind of goes along with... Uh, suspense and psychology really you know but uh it it was very effective actually yeah and very effective and 
quite obviously like it was obviously the big set piece they really really put everything into and after that they couldn't really raise it to the same height I guess yeah I remember the, f- the first time I saw it it was like that I, I kind of thought um, like you, you had the, the, the big set piece where Pat gets killed at the start and I was watching it and I'd never really seen anything like that before I'd never seen I don't think I'd seen really much Italian horror and it just like I was like oh my god that is such a brutal leering almost death scene basically at any time i could sense that a, mur- a murder was coming up throughout the rest of the film i was my heart kind of sank a bit i was like oh no here we go again but like none of yeah. them maybe apart from like sarah's yeah. murder none of them really kind of live up to that um yeah but yeah it was, it was kind of the, it was kind of the opposite for me um crazy p because um i saw this when i was like i was like it was 18 and it was in first year uni and um a friend of mine was studying music or studying film and it was like every month or something, one of the um, film students who were in their final year, they showed their, you know, kind of short piece, like their 10 minute short film. Um, and after they showed it, they then got to pick a feature film to show as well. And it was shown in the, you know, the uh, the university cinema. And my friend was like, oh, you know, he knew I liked horror films and he was trying to persuade me to go. He says like, oh, you should go down and see this Italian horror film. You know, it's, it's probably pretty cool. And uh, I had seen Demons I kind of knew what he meant by Italian horror. I was like, oh, okay, it'll probably be like Demons then. And obviously, like, Dario Argento's name is on Demons. So whenever we, we yeah. sat down in the theatre and we watched um, we watched the, the, the student's film, which was basically uh, a rip-off of the um, scene in Donnie Darko when he's walking through the uh, school to Echo and the Bunnymen. So oh, yeah, it was yeah. just a rip-off of that. And then, but then the film that he chose was uh, Suspiria. And when it came up and it said directed by Dario Argento, I turned to my friend and went, oh, my God, I've seen one of his films. This is going to be brutal. And I think, like, <laughs> after after the first murder scene, like, a couple of people just got up and, and walked out. It was like, oh, this isn't for me. <laughs> but I, I was kind of like you, Paul. It was like, at the time, I think um, all the kind of weird, like, Italian-ness, you know, the, the kind of kind of specific um, aesthetic of Italian horror films of, like, the late 70s and early 80s, because I wasn't really used to that, I actually found the film quite funny. And I was laughing at some of the stupid dialogue and some of the stupid actions and facial expressions that the characters make. Yeah, um, there's some ridiculous dialogue. And, yeah, and uh, so I, and I like think... I, raspberry I, blowing and stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I kind of left the, the cinema thinking, oh, you know, that, that wasn't a very good film. That, that was almost kind of laughable. But then whenever I got um, home that night... I realized that I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about all all the different things that had happened in the film. And I thought about it for about a week, week or two afterwards. And I eventually, even though at that stage I was convinced it wasn't a very good film, I just bought it on DVD anyway because I couldn't couldn't stop thinking about it. And I watched yeah. it again and I realized, it was at that point that I realized how, how, how good a film it is. Dee, what about you? Uh, I think the first time I watched it was you showed it to me. I think I came over to visit you in Glasgow and we watched it together. Um, I think I was maybe... I don't think underwhelmed is the right term because I did enjoy it, but I don't think I enjoyed it as much the, the next couple of times I watched it. Yeah, for some reason it seems to have uh, it's better upon repeat viewing. I think you appreciate it more, uh, but it, it still had like the the feeling of like well the the impact of the the the, the first uh, death scene, uh, which is straight away because um, it is quite intense, and I suppose with the the goblin music on top of that, it kind of adds to the whole thing. But uh, yeah, I think like watching it back last night, I think I actually have more appreciation for it now as well. And I must have watched it like four or five times now. 
but can you pick up a lot more I think as well like especially aesthetically and stuff and, mm. uh, whereas the first time I watched it I don't think I paid as much attention but yeah like what you guys are saying as well the first time I watched it there's like you do find yourself laughing at some of the dialogue and uh, but it, I saw a thing earlier um, uh, maybe it's too early to get into this but uh, someone had mentioned that apparently it was supposed to be young children they advised Argento that he should uh, make them older because it would be uh, he probably just wouldn't be allowed to release the film, uh, but so that he did that, obviously. But he didn't change the script, which explains a lot of the sort of juvenile dialogue. Uh, yeah, which is quite noticeable. I think it's whenever the main character is being introduced to the rest of the girls in the sort of the changing room, and the dialogue is absolutely farcical. Yes, <laughs> if you're never good to ask, you're a snake. Yeah, all good. <laughs> So someone says something like piggy or something like that as well. I, I had to go look it up what the script was because I couldn't really make out what they were saying. But yeah, I just thought it was maybe some proper personal insults, but it's just nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird, isn't it? Yeah, but, uh, but like I, I, still, I still like really enjoyed it though the first time I watched it. But I think I also had a feeling of knowing what to expect with Italian horror films because it's seen a few filthy things. And I think it's like if you're not used to the dubbing, uh, if you watched that for the first time, you'd think it like, like sounded really crap and the acting's awful. But I suppose like we'll probably go into like why some of the the acting is awful and the dubbing's crap. Yeah, I get. Well, I mean, I guess that's that's maybe a good time to good thing to kick us off the the uh, explanation of why uh, why the dubbing is so shit. <laughs> the, I think I I read. I think it seems to be. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is standard with Argento at this time, but like um, because all the actors were from different parts of the world, uh, speaking their own languages, none of them understood each other's lines, so they just didn't record any of the sound. <laughs> they were just basically they were talking, but it was used as it's like mime essentially, and then they just dubbed it all over later. And there were like people like hammering in the background of, of scenes and stuff like that because they were still building the sets and. Uh, Nobody had a clue what each other were saying. Sometimes you're trying to keep a straight face because they basically they think they're just being spoken to in gibberish, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it's probably cheaper as well, isn't it? It's probably cheaper to to just record the the video, and then you can do the um, the uh, dubbing in the studio afterwards rather than having to you know yeah. constantly yeah. have a boom in the mic. Like. A- anyone who's who's seen that film uh, Bavarian Sound Studio, you know that that's all yeah. about that's all about yeah. the, um, the uh, dubbing studios of of uh, Rome during that period. Another interesting thing is that I think it was Jessica Harper who plays Susie Banyan in the film. She said uh, Goblin had some of the music already composed and Dario Argento used to blast the music out while, yeah. while they were actually acting just to kind of um, you know give them the atmosphere and kind of get them all worked up. I read somewhere that the music was being played on the side and then I read somewhere that Goblin themselves were actually playing it on the side so I don't know which is, uh, which is, is true. But definitely I don't think I've ever seen Maybe I have, but it's one of the better examples of like I don't know any example where a soundtrack does so much work for the film. You know, it it carries it. And like, there's some scenes. The first murder scene, there's one bit where she's just walking towards a window and walking back from a window for a long, long time. And Goblin are really, really blasting their their stuff. Like, mm-hmm. and because because Goblin are doing a thing it's like fuck this is really really intense but if there was no no sound there at all it's just somebody walking back and forth through the window you know <laughs> there's nothing happening outside that window either you heard um I, I don't know if i'm pronouncing this correctly is the term like diegetic 
I think it's whenever uh, sound is natural to a film and sometimes choose the, the, the soundtrack. But it's, does this, like, skirt the kind of grounds of that in a way? Because uh... it's almost supposed to be emanating from the forest, I, I kind of felt at the start. And mm. Oh, it, right, okay. Uh... Like, if you had a medieval film, uh, for yeah. example, all the, the music in it would be suitable to the time. That's okay, sort of yeah, yeah. Be coming from the actual set rather than background music that sort of thing yeah yeah especially in Suspiria with the kind of like whispers yeah you know, kind of like yeah. sighing and the, and the whispers oh, that you have in the background yeah <laughs> which yeah. possibly that gives it a quite like an extra kind of creepy dimension actually which I like that idea I never thought of that D and I um, a few years ago um, as part of some it must, was it the Belfast Film Festival they showed Suspiria and Claudio Simonetti um, who's the lead ga- member of uh, Goblin Came over with his with his band. It wasn't Goblin, but because it was billed as like Claudio Simonetti, they you know performed the live score to to the <laughs> to the film, and it was brilliant. Um, yeah, it was amazing. But it was really weird seeing seeing Claudio Simonetti playing the keyboard and also um, doing all the whispering and the sighing. He was actually doing it live. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. That like proto death metal kind of yeah vocals. Super um, super proggy. D, were you at that, uh, was it Dawn of the Dead? We talked about it here before, but I was trying to yeah. remember. When it, it was Dawn of the Dead with, with Goblin, wasn't it? It was Simonetti. And so the not, Waterfront. So. Yeah. Yeah. That was good as well. They yeah. were, uh, they're, they're fucking tight, those guys. Like. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the sound for the film was horrendous, but the sound right, for the, yeah. the band was great. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, it was really bad for the film. Uh, yeah, that's right. They obviously, like, didn't have enough <laughs> speakers or, like, their system was limited or something. It sounded they didn't like... give it all to the band. And... But, uh... Um, but yeah, the, the soundtrack is, uh, I think that's one of the first things you sort of almost feel at the start of the film. Like, yeah, you just get really, uh, it, like, it really pulls you in, the, the first scene and the intensity of it. It's a noisy soundtrack, but it's also particularly loud. Like, it's very high in the mix, I think. I also really like the way uh, the film just starts. Um, you know, it doesn't have, like, you know, like, five different, um, you know, eye dents for all the different different labels and distributors. It, yeah. It's just, like, black and then the, the first... Uh, title comes up and uh, the drums just start immediately and it all builds up if you watch um, the the sequel to Suspiria Inferno because of the success of Suspiria Inferno got a um, like a pretty big release like 20th Century Fox released it so like you're when you watch Inferno, you're, you're kind of sitting down to watch like the sequel to Suspiria, which you know is going to be more more of the same because it was only released like a, a year or two after Suspiria. But it starts off with the rinsing, rinsing, rinsing. Yeah. You know, Twentieth Century Fox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it almost True. kind of um, ruins the tone, even though it hasn't begun, because you're yeah. kind of thinking, "Oh, this is like a, this is a, a mainstream film. This is you know, this is yeah, a yeah. Argento film." So yeah, another I, I, I way Suspiria just cause starts immediately and then. It just crescendos up, yeah. and then just kind of crashes out, and then that's when the kind of the weird musical box uh-huh. uh, melody kicks in, which is really yeah. it, it. It really fits like the, the the idea of it being like a a musical box, and you're going diddly 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 diddly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like especially if you consider that the, the there were supposed to be you know twelve year old kids. I know. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like creepy wee music box. Really, really cool. Yeah. When was the um, the Exorcist released? 74, 73? I think 73, maybe. So it would have been before. Kind of I, it was before, yeah. Um, I, I was, was just thinking, like, about but... wee bit similar, I suppose, with Halloween as well. Like, you know, like yeah. kind of 
all those tubular bell type soundtracks. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose that that's actually quite, quite a nice link back to Suspiria because um, part of the controversy of The Exorcist was the fact that it depicts um, a young girl being, you know, um, being terrorized or being possessed, and so you yeah. can kind of see why they thought they might have kind of di- distribution issues if they of all the characters in Suspiria were were kids. I think there's a bit of a... Is there sort of controversy over Argento in, in general uh, from a kind of, uh, I guess, a feminist perspective? I think so. Uh, like, to be fair, like I've only seen, uh, I think, Tenebrae and uh, Suspiria, so I haven't seen everything. But uh, I assume it's just women being killed constantly. I think so. And like from this, you do get the... Actually, I think in that Empire that I read about, about it, it had the it had still from... Uh, what do you call it? The girl in the the barbed wire room, and the caption on the the still was like, uh, uh, "Dario Argento, he really hates women." So <laughs> I was like, well, I've actually got a, a good quote from him. Uh, it's like, uh, "This is Dario Argento's uh, exact words." It's like, "I like when, especially beautiful ones, if they have a good <laughs> face and figure, I would much prefer to watch them being murdered than an ugly girl or man." <laughs> really weird, isn't it? We were wrong about him. I know that like pe- people often kind of like leap to Ar- Argento's defense uh, whenever that kind of stuff comes up um, by saying that like he uh, he had this thing against his aunt. I think his aunt raised him or something, and she was really abusive yeah. to him, which just doesn't really explain or excuse. But then, I mean, there is also the fact that like most of the time his um his villains are women you know like they're kind of unmasked uh, at the very end yeah. and you find out it was a yeah. woman all along kind of thing would that add into the the idea that he hits women <laughs> i don't yeah. know but it, it might it might at least um put forward the argument that he treats uh women you know justly as in he he makes them the innocent victims and also the kind of cunning mm-hmm. uh, m- merciless killers yeah. not sure i suppose though so. like he victimizes them and also then turns his his persecution of them around so it seems like women are doing the persecuting when actually he's the writer of it all so mm-hmm. and he's the guy in charge and am I wrong in thinking that technically he kills the women is he the one that always does the stabbing it's it's pretty much always uh, Argento's hands in any of his films when when you know like because obviously his earlier films and some of his later films were like giallos, so there's always a faceless killer with black leather gloves, and yeah. um, all the focus on, the, on what the hands are doing, and the hands were always Argento's any time he was filming. Um, oh, is that the case in Suspiria? With the big hairy yeah. arm? I think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's with yeah. those arms? <laughs> <laughs> really hairy. It's, like, yeah. <laughs> it's one thing I, I always find funny about um, sort of Italian horror films, uh, like uh, like even Demons. Like the hands always have these big fingernails mm. that are quite yeah. like, look actually quite well manicured. But, it, it makes it so much more grotesque. Well Don't manicured like, fingers. No, well, just, just, like, just like the long nails. It's the, it's the same in Inferno. Like the the hands are really really long nails. It's really kind of it makes it creepier. Like that that was one of the things when, I think when I first saw the film. That was one of the things I think that really disturbed me was there was just there's something about the way he films like the hands doing stuff like. Um, like you know, like the hand reaching for the white cord, you know that he's gonna mm-hmm. strangle um, Pat with. There's just something really weird about it, and the fact that he made like it like a big horrible hairy arm with long yeah. fingernails it just makes it even more gr- grotesque. Yeah. 
that whole scene, like, uh, I think just the way it's filmed in general is, uh, like, adds to the, I guess, the grotesque nature of it, like, because it does, like, have a, quite a visceral impact, the way he's done everything. Uh, like, even the wee tiny bits of, uh, isn't there, like, a cord that, like, gets ripped off the wall? Yeah. But the, the way it's yeah. filmed is maybe with, like, it looks like a steady cam kind of thing. Mm. But yeah. there's only a few seconds of it, but it really adds to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing, like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then like the the climax is finding out that her uh, flatmate has also been killed with the yeah. like, shard of glass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, such, it's such an amazing. Um, it's it's almost like a tableau at the at, you know when when yeah the, yeah it is kind of her hanging there and then the the woman below and then it just immediately cuts to like you know birds chirping and the next day and Susie arrives yeah. back at the uh, dance academy gives you a bit of a flavor of the film like maybe not necessarily with the frequency of the violence but certainly stylistically anyway when she first comes into the airport like uh, you get a, a flavor of the colors i noticed which yeah. i didn't notice the first time i watched it but there's like uh, i think when the camera's kind of on her and it's like uh, coming back from her direction there's two women on either side of her which are maybe our hostesses but they've got red on and there's a few other like passengers that are wearing red and stuff as well yeah and then she sort of she watches the woman in red sort of walk out of the airport, and that is actually, uh, I forgot her name, I'm sort of looking it up here. Darian uh, Yeah. Who's that? She was uh, Arzendo's wife at the time. Yeah, um, yeah, and she is co-writer and was meant to be um, lead role, but uh, they wanted an American for marketing purposes. Whenever you see Susie walking down the big tunnel at the start, when the camera's facing her on the audience's left, that woman is supposedly Daria Nicolodi. Although I read that, and when I was watching it, I made sure I got a good look at her, and it it doesn't to me it doesn't look like Daria Nicolodi. I don't yeah. know why, but it doesn't look like her to me. And Daria Nicolodi has really really distinctive features. Um, I was kind of watching the thinking, I don't think that is her, but you know, I could be wrong. Who knows? It could be one of the other women, maybe. And it's just sort of got mixed up in in lore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I love even the whole bit of the sort of uncomfortableness of the, the taxi ride. Mm. Uh, yeah. What's it called? It's whatever Strasse it is. Yeah, she says like Essa Strasse and then he says yeah. like, ah, Essa Strasse. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking about that because like, like I, I've had like two or three experiences like that in, in, in a foreign country before. Um, one of the most recent ones was um, I was in France uh, and we were staying in in the South uh, uh, Côte d'Azur, and there was a guy selling fish uh, on the seafront. So I went down to see if I could get any mussels off him. And obviously, like the the French word for mussels is moule. So I said, you know, bonjour, monsieur, uh, avez-vous uh, moule? And he went moule, moule. And I went, uh, oui, uh, moule. And he was like moule, like he didn't know what, had a clue what I was talking about. And then eventually he went, ah, moule. And I was like, yes, <laughs> Mool. <laughs> That's what I was saying. And it's the, she has the exact same um, um, experience in the taxi driver because she says Essestrasse and the taxi driver's like, what? Where the, where? Oh, Essestrasse. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I had, uh, when I was in Germany, um, it's whatever hostel I was staying at, um, I went up to the reception and asked if they had any like lockers from a bag. And they were they sort of didn't really understand me, but eventually they were like, oh, okay, okay. It'd be fifty euro, and I was like, "It's a bit expensive for a, a locker." Like, uh, but but I, like, I assumed it was just a deposit. Um, so I gave her the fifty euro, and she gave me this big massive key. And I went out to where the lockers were, 
and it was just way too big for them. I was like, this, this isn't the right thing. Like, so I, <laughs> yeah. I went back in, and she had uh, hired me a bike for the day. <laughs> right, okay. It's like, no, no, not not bike, uh, bike. You know, that's what you've got confused. <laughs> I think that's maybe just more a Northern Irish accent. Yeah, yeah. bike, 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 kind of thing. Um, <laughs> there's actually a, a similar a similar taxi ride in Inferno at the, at the start of the film, and it's the same taxi driver. It's the same. Guy. Was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen Inferno. It's 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 good. But I, I can't remember that. It's it's not as good as Suspiria, I don't think. Colors that are still still beautiful. Though. It's it's still it's the same kind of aesthetic. Yeah, it's just it's not it's just not not really as well not as good. I don't think. There's a great bit where um she's driving along in the, in the, in the back of the taxi and like I don't know what it is. I think it's maybe like um skips or something and shining out of it in the rain. There's like yellow light and then red light and then blue light and then mm. suddenly. The camera's obviously just sitting, staring at the window as the car's moving, and it goes along with that. And then suddenly the car goes under under a tunnel, and there's these long, thin blue lights just flashing yeah. back and forth. It's just like you've just got like the, these kind of like lovely yellow and red colors, and then all of a sudden you've got these kind of blue lights flashing across the screen. It's just every single frame is kind of um, done almost with the kind of you know finalness uh, of uh, you know someone like Kubrick or something like that. It's like yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing's kind of just filmed half-heartedly. Everything's everything's kind of done with a purpose. Yeah. I think, like, the whole thing, um, I was reading a decent review uh, earlier. Someone described the whole film as, like, dreamlike. Hmm. Uh, so they sort of said the whole opening section kind of, like, leads the way for that as well. It's just everything's so intense and quite surreal as well. Because some of the criticisms of the script, um, well, the person who wrote the review anyway, was um, could actually feed into the idea that it's quite, uh, like, surreal as well. And you're not yeah. sure what's real and what's not kind of thing. Maybe that's given her the benefit of the doubt a wee bit. <laughs> but, like, did you guys notice, because I think this, this is what struck me the first time I saw it, um, the first murder scene when Pat gets murdered, once she breaks through through the window, you've absolutely no idea where she is. Because, like, she's standing in the room, and outside we can see darkness and clothes hanging on line. So you basically assume, well, that's just outside. But then once she crashes through the window, she's suddenly in some weird, like industrial looking place with like a yeah, big wall and she seems to be in like yeah. the the room that keeps all, all the air vents feeding to or something yeah. like it's uh... I don't know I mean it would be a bit ridiculous if that was a mistake I, I I kind of wonder is that like on purpose is he is Argento just kind of making sure you know he's kind of make, trying to upset us so that we don't actually yeah. we don't, can't work out where she is and yeah. nothing seems to kind of work It'd be quite strange for someone who quite clearly puts uh, a lot of time and effort into every little shot. Suddenly, just uh, throw well, throw something out the window. Yeah, so it's it's hard to be hard to tell if that's done on purpose or not. Like there is a lot to be said for the the dream surreal kind of element, especially actually when she's watching the girl run through the woods. She doesn't even like stop to go try to get the taxi driver to stop, and he I think the taxi driver sees her as well. And does no inclination to. Like stop or even like you know investigate. It just seems like like they're both just passively watching this thing that they aren't really too concerned about. You know, mm. um, I suppose even the whole like uh, the introduction to when, when she finally gets into the the school, um, the, the introduction to all the characters is kind of bizarre. Yeah, but it's like it's sort of you're not sure if the script is like just that awful, but they're just really really strange. I know it's it, it's almost like. Dario Nicolodi's English English was was and is quite good, but any time I've heard Dario Argento 
being interviewed, he's he's always subtitled, and any time I've heard him speak English, it's very very broken. So yeah. you do kind of wonder maybe it's just well the people who wrote the script English wasn't their native language, so so they were it's an Italian woman's perception of what American children talk like. Maybe that's yeah. just why everything is a bit weird. But yeah, it is it, it is really really. Like whenever she first sees Madame Blanc, when Madame Blanc's talking to the police chiefs, and then she, Madame Blanc just kind of looks at her, and it's kind of like sizing her up and staring at her up and down, and then kind of walks over, and everything's kind of really rapid. Like she doesn't really, she doesn't pause. She just kind of blurts out all the information to Susie, and talks about, oh, I knew your aunt in New York, and then just kind of buggers off again. And you can't, yeah. you can't tell if it's just because everything's supposed to be really real or or supposed to be really surreal, or yeah, as we've said, like if it's just you know that kind of classic those kind of problems with like Italian horror films of that era in terms of dialogue and dubbing and script I thought uh, is it Alita Valley the one that plays Miss Tanner mm. I actually genuinely thought she was really good uh, like her delivery of lines and I know it's dubbed as well but like uh, yeah. she seems to have saved it a wee bit as well somehow with from the dubbing like mm. with her it's hard to tell because she seems to get her character into the dubbing too She's she's also in Inferno She's definitely one of those characters, though, I've found that when I show people the film for the first time, and especially people who aren't maybe au fait with, with the way Italian horror works, that she's definitely one of the characters that, that gets the most laughs, I find. Really? You know, yeah, because she's, she's, she's a bit weird, isn't she? Some of the things she says, like um, especially when she's talking to, you know, Pavlo. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's kind of a bit weird, I think, and she kind of like has really weird kind of facial expressions and kind of smiles and then drops her smile really quickly and things like that um, but I think yeah overall like deliberate or not it definitely just adds to just how weird and, and creepy everything is I do think it's kind of telling that like at, at the start of this podcast we've, we've spent the first section not really discussing the plot and only talking about the <laughs> aesthetics and the music because I yeah. think that's I think that kind of says it all because I mean there isn't really anything there isn't really much to write home about in, in terms of the plot, is there? No, there's not. No. Somebody, a girl, gets locked in a room. Academy for, or not even locked in a room, just sort of gets gets fed bed and breakfast every or breakfast in bed every uh, every day for a few days, and thinks witches are like whiplash with witches is what I kept <laughs> thinking of when I watched it last night. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I like I like the idea um, of of the plot where there's you know an old music school founded by the occult and it seems to have it's really believable to an extent you know um like a lot of these old like sort of high modernist kind of uh institutions were kind of like interested in the occult and like modern painters and poets and artists and dancers were had their sort of occultish sort of uh uh interests and stuff so yeah you can sort of all ties in in an interesting way like you know like mm. Crowley and Yeats and hmm. and what was Yeats's wife who could channel spirits into automatic writing and stuff all that mm. the the aesthetics of the building as well like it's really funny of and it obviously gone for a particular period um and just really they've done it really really well I don't know if like the like the building itself the in, insides existed or if it was just completely designed for the set mm. but anyway so this is back to the aesthetics again like <laughs> but like I think that there's all the rooms are stunning. Like there's yeah, uh, there's not one boring room. Like there's there's always some like level of interest and detail in each one. Yeah, uh, there is. Whatever way they've filmed it, they've managed to sort of highlight the details without taking away, I guess, from well, 
not there is much of a story, but like it doesn't distract you too much from. Apparently, they purposely put the the door handles like really high up on the doors yeah. to make it look like, like they were, Yeah, to make it look like the kids. Don't know if I really felt that. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, yeah, I only only sort of once I thought about that afterwards, I read that, and then once I thought about it afterwards, I was like, oh yeah, okay. But it adds sort of like fairy tale kind of horror element to it, I guess. Is that why they cast uh, Jessica Harper? Just because she's got those like big eyes and looks quite innocent, maybe? Yeah, she's uh, pretty good in it, isn't she? As well, Jessica Harper. She is good. Yeah, is she maybe let down by the script. I, I think she is definitely early on. It gets better, um, mm. and she she does shine a couple of times, like uh, especially when she's on her own. <laughs> I noticed. Yeah, which is yeah. Some of the sort of uh, exposition, I guess, that takes place in the dialogue is just awful. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Yeah, and they could have just um, left it out. They could have done, yeah. I mean, you would have just got it anyway. Like, I mean, actually, there is narration at the beginning that basically explains yeah. everything you need to know, you know, so why, yeah. <laughs> why go through it all again for the sake of the characters, you know? That kind of makes it even more, more like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. It's like a once upon a time. Uh, apparently, like, uh, Argento said to the set designer or something that he wanted um, to look like uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He got him to study, he had him study the, um, the original uh, Snow White film, the colour scheme, I think. Yeah. Apparently, um, there's another thing I, I was reading, because uh, it's in Technicolor as well, it was one of like, the last films to use like Technicolor cameras. That apparently is a confusion. Apparently it used a Technicolor, yeah. it didn't use Technicolor camera, it used a Technicolor, like, post-production some sort of machine in post-production and uh-huh. um, when they explained that in a documentary about it they showed a picture of the technical camera which then uh-huh. uh confused things but it was yeah it was like processed in technicolor afterwards um but they had to like they i think it's maybe the last film that was ever processed in with that machine uh, was that like from influence well at least this is what they were saying uh in the review they've influenced from um what do you call it, gone with the wind yeah, I heard that somewhere he actually. The colors yeah. in it. I watched a wee YouTube documentary actually about it last night. It was like five facts. Um, and oh, I he, saw that. He as well. Yeah, yeah, he definitely mentioned Gone with the Wind. There's a bit where um, uh, Sarah, I think just before she dies, when she's kind of exploring the um, the dark hallways of the ballet school, and it's all it's all red, and it's it's red so much that it almost kind of blocks out blotches out her features. That's I mean, what I quite like about it, though. This yeah. Sort of saturation of red everywhere and yeah. the first time I bought it well, I bought it on DVD and then watched it on, do you remember whenever like widescreen TVs were like really chunky almost as deep as they are wide yeah, I watched yeah. it on one of those really old TVs in Glasgow and then last night I watched it on like a flat screen digital with uh, on Blu-ray um, uh-huh. and it just looks so good in Blu-ray yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That really, really brings it all out, actually. It really does. So, yeah. So it's one of those films, I think, with, like, aspirations, really, really... It's art's really benefited from it. Like. Yeah. Can you imagine what that would have been like to watch it, like, in, like, VHS in the in the, in the the 80s? It would have been shit. And maybe that's one of the reasons I wasn't, like, the first time I watched it with you, Ian, like, I wasn't blown away, uh, just because we watched it on DVD. Uh, yeah. Probably wouldn't have been a great TV as well. So the colours would have been probably quite flat and... I think that was because I think like I was aware of the colours but it was only really like last night when I watched it on Blu-ray that I thought Jesus this really is like all about the colours it's ridiculous yeah so I think in uh, Susie's room 
like you know the entire time she's in the room and the I think they're like are they drugging her wine? Is that what's going on? I think so. Yeah. Don't think you ever find out. Yeah, you don't really. Yeah. You sort of get the the idea because when um, I keep forgetting her friend's name, Sarah. She, yeah, when Sarah's trying to talk to her, she keeps like she's passing out basically. You know, after her yeah. Wine. But it's just uh, the the colours in her room are incredible because yeah. there's like this contrast between blue and red constantly. There's parts where I suppose she's supposed to be quite aware of her surroundings and it's just back to normal colours. Mm. Uh, I think there's a bit where Sarah's in the room and Susie's just passed out in her sort in her arms, and uh, she turns the light off because she thinks someone's coming. And then the cut to like a green kind of light, yeah, which is her in the dark. Uh, but the whole thing's done amazingly well. Yeah, the green light, that it just yeah. sort of like flashes on after a second, and it uh, works really well. And then she's basically being like she's being pursued by like a blue light against the wall, and it's moving across the wall. And as it's moving further across the wall, she's cowering and stuff. And yeah, mm. uh, yeah. I like I like that she was basically just chased there by the lights. She, she's actually really really good. Like because Stefani uh, Cassini, I think is her name, who plays Sarah, and she um, she definitely hams it up, especially in comparison to uh, Jessica Harper's. Um, performance but i i kind of think that suits suits the film and i think it kind of suits the the kind of almost theatrical fairy tale aspect of it like whenever she whenever she locks herself in that room and the person puts through the, the knife to try and you know open the lock to try and get her like when she sees the knife sliding through like the look on her face is just complete and utter terror like she can't believe yeah. what's happening it's like it's so it's almost like she's a silent movie star you know everything has to be conveyed in the face so yeah. it's, it's just her face is just like utter terror it's just it's class okay i noticed as well i might be remembering this wrong but when that's happening uh i think the the music's playing in the background but then it stops when she notices the window mm. oh yeah, yeah so it's almost like the music i suppose is supposed to add to or that is her like terror coming through yeah uh, but yeah it stops when she gets the wee boxes and everything and then obviously starts again when she jumps into the, the razor wire. <laughs> so good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, That was on the, that Five Facts thing on YouTube that they said that she genuinely hurt her quite badly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the wire was not barbed wire, but it was just wire. And if you jump in a load of wire, you're going to cut yourself. If you've ever <laughs> touched the end of a guitar string, I guess, you know, like, you know, how fucking massively, bastardly painful that can be. Yeah. Like. <laughs> Yeah, like I think that was one of the things that really almost disturbed me, or at least caught my attention. But the film when I saw it for the first time was like that that death scene. It just to me, it just seemed so like almost like gleeful, just like so yeah, yeah. so sadistic. Like it's not just like you know any other ha- horror film where you just see like the knife going up and down, and then it's implied mm. that someone has been stabbed and is therefore dead. Yeah, and move on to the next scene. It's like okay, so we're gonna have a big massive chase. Um, and just when she thinks she's free, she's going to end up falling into a, a pit of barbed wire and rolling around in that, screaming for about a minute before someone comes in and snips her throat in like really, really gory close-up. <laughs> I've got a memory of you, and um, I think it was like maybe we'd been on a night out or whatever. But when we went back to your house, you kept replaying that scene over and over again. <laughs> going, Are you guys watching this? <laughs> 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 you sick fuck yeah I think that was only like a, a year after I'd seen it and it was still it still was just blowing me away just I couldn't <laughs> believe it never apart from demons there's like a specific kind of like violence that you find in Italian, Italian horror and like I think demons was the only Italian horror that I'd seen up until that point um, and there's like bits in like demons like whenever um, they kind of finally kill the masked killer and they don't just kill him but 
they like force his head onto like this spike that's sticking out of the ground and it goes right into his eye just like scenes like that um or or like you know like the eye piercing scene in uh, zombie flesh eaters it's just yeah. it's, it's so gleeful it's just like oh here you go here's like here's actually someone getting horrendous killed we're not just suggesting it <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, Stefania Cassini is in uh, another brilliant film. I think it was just after this one, just after Suspiria. It's called uh, The Bloodstained Shadow. Right. It's a classic uh, Italian giallo. If you if you were looking to get into the the giallo genre, I would definitely 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 watch that. It's like it's just classic. All the tropes are there, like the 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 whispering phone calls and the black leather gloves and the the twist at the end and stuff. It's a really weird film, and she she's in it. That's kind of another another thing that um, I always try and think about when I'm watching Suspiria is kind of how close to the giallo films it is because uh, <clears throat> like up until then pretty much all Argento's films had been giallo films um, Bird of Crystal Plumage, Cat or Nine Tails Four Flies in Grey Velvet and then I think it was Deep Red Deep Red I think is, is the first kind of it's definitely like a straight up giallo film but it's the first giallo uh, Argento does that um, starts to bring in kind of elements of the of the supernatural and things like that. When you watch the films in that order, you can really see like where he was going and, and what he kind of wanted to do next. Um, yeah. Apparently, um, after the success of Deep Red, he was thinking of doing um, starting to do some Lovecraft uh, adaptations. Oh, really? But I think um, people have suggested that he kind of realized how restricted he would be in terms of budget. You know, in terms of being the massive yeah, like, you know, Lovecraftian. Monsters, so that's why Suspiria was kind of like a compromise because he wanted to do something a bit more supernatural, a bit more fantastical. And he remembered a story that uh, Daria Nicolodi's um, grandmother had told her about when she went to uh, a ballet school or a dance academy in Germany, and she ran away because she heard that the um, the leaders of the dance school were um, doing uh, witchcraft, were like practicing black magic yeah. and witchcraft, and that's where that's where they got the idea uh, to to do Suspiria. But it's just, it's just really interesting when you're watching Suspiria to, to try and think of it also as a giallo film because we have the kind of like the, the faceless killer and all we, all we see is the hands. Uh, we don't have the whispering phone calls though. Um, it's, well, like uh, on that subject, is there like a loose uh, definition of like what it takes to be a giallo film? Well, I, I suppose it's, it's kind of reached by consensus, but it's, I mean, the uh, word like means yellow because... It was the name given to like um, in the sixties and seventies. Um, they would publish like kind of cheap paperback novels in Europe um, and Italy, uh, especially um, of just like murder mystery thrillers. So stuff like Agatha Christie would have been translated into Italian or French, and it's kind of intended for like holiday makers who are going abroad and just want a cheap paperback novel. And the publisher, whoever was publishing them, it was always yellow, so they ended up being called giallos. So yeah. in in Italian, giallo just became a word for like a murder mystery detect you know detective thriller like mm-hmm. the killer at the end. So and as far as I know, um, like Italians would still Italian speakers would still use the term giallo maybe like even to describe something like Friday the Thirteenth or like a Poirot. Whereas like English speakers, when we say giallo, we generally mean a kind of specific subgenre of Italian or even yeah. European European horror from that era. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah there are like telltale signs so like the killer always has black gloves, you only ever see their hands. There's usually um like whispering phone calls and there's usually um the uh protagonist is usually like an American or an English person who's in a foreign country and witnesses a murder and doesn't know who did the murder but there's something there's something that they 
they can't quite put their finger on. Like quite a lot of Jellos have that, where the, the whole way through the film, yeah. the, the characters, the characters thinking back on the murder and saying, "Oh, there's there was something there that I didn't get my that I've kind of missed that I that I can't put my finger on." But it's I, I know it's the key to the to the yeah. film, and like and like you like, see that in the Iris. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the Iris in Suspiria or in like Deep Red. Um, it happens as well, um, and it happens in Bird of Crystal Plumage, if you've seen that. Yeah. Um, What's the one with the, I think the murder victims, like, uh, well, or at least one of them leaves a clue in, like, steam on the wall, like he sort of writes something with a finger? That is oh, yeah, that. Deep Red, Profondo Rosso. That's the one I've seen, yeah. Yeah. With Jello films, the movie is more... Or no, maybe uh, it's Tenebrae? Maybe is it's, it Tenebrae? Because I, I thought I'm... it was Tenebrae at Steam. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Tenebrae with the um the the person as they're dying writes the name in the condensation. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's uh, Tenebrae. So stuff like the color red is that more uh, an Argento thing rather than a Jello thing? Yeah, definitely. There, there isn't. Yeah. I've never I've never noticed any kind of yeah color thing in uh, Jello films. because yeah, I don't think I have any experience with them outside Argento. Mm. And then arguably Suspiria might not even count as one. Yeah, arguably. Fulci did a few uh, giallos, and uh, the, the the Spanish did quite a lot, and then there's like, you know, other kind of Italian directors. Pretty much like most of the Italian directors at that time um, tried their hand at the giallo films, like Bava did loads, uh, Luigi Cozzi did one. There's a great one by a director called, like, Avanti Pupi or something, <laughs> P-U-P-I, <laughs> uh, the, the House with the Laughing Windows, which is just an absolutely phenomenal giallo. So, so good. Oh, yeah. Beautifully, beautifully shot. Um, okay. So check that out if you give a shit. Have you ever seen? Um, it's, a, it's a very different movie. It might sort of fall into like a proto giallo. Um, the Assassin. Um, I'm trying. I'm looking up who it's by. Actually, I watched recently. Uh, Elio Petri. I saw it quite recently. It's uh, it's like a, an art an art dealer and a antique dealer who is arrested and he doesn't know why. It's kind of it starts off quite guesk and uh, then he uh, finds out that his lover has been murdered and. You sort of, I think you get like the whispering phone calls and things. You get like the little clues, and he's he's put in jail cell, and people are trying to like um, these guys are thrown in with him, and they try to get him to confess, but they're meant to be fellow prisoners. And then uh, basically they they try to con him into confessing, and then there's there are twists and stuff. But it's it's quite good, but it's all it's very much all just sort of suspense. And uh, there is I can't even really remember if the murder is actually in it. It's good. It's it's worth it. An evening if you if you. Find out it's like 61, 60, 61, I think. And, oh, it's really uh, early. Uh, yeah, so it, uh, it's, it has none of the brutality you would associate with there, Jello, but uh, sort of, yeah, an early... Or it's, it probably is closer to noir, but it has its, its oddities that sort of from sort of standard noir. Um, one of the things we should have... One of the clips we should have played earlier on was the uh, the uh, dressing room scene. I've got a clip of that um, yeah. where you can kind of oh, hear it's... the... The kind of corny dialogue. Will we listen to that clip and, and come back in a bit? Yep, yeah, okay. Cool. cool. Squawk, squawk, squawk. Mata Hari is going to file her report. <laughs> my name is Olga, and you're my tenant. Oh, hi, nice to meet you. They uh, tell me you have to give me $50 a week. Yeah. In advance. Well, don't worry if you oh. think I'm not... Don't get hot under the collar. That's how people are here. Uh, can anybody lend me a pair of shoes? Yes, me. Oh, thank you. If you want to buy them, I can make you a nice price. 50 marks. Oh, no thanks. I already have some in my suitcase. 
I just need a pair for today. But if you'd rather not. No, okay, go ahead, take them. But uh, give them back, of course. Um, when, when I was watching it this time, I noticed there's like an issue with the uh, with the timings that Susie says when she arrived, because <clears throat> as far as I can remember, the narrator at the start says that she arrived in Freiburg, or he says Freiburg erroneously when she arrived in Freiburg at ten forty five. Whenever she arrives at the dance academy the next morning, she said, "Oh, I was here at a, at ten o'clock last night, and no one answered." And then whenever the police ask her, then she says eleven. Uh, right, okay. So I've never ah, known okay. that's just a kind of like a goof, like a continuity error yeah. or something. But yeah, hmm. I suppose yeah, that's the thing. Like you don't know, do you? This could be part of she's a bit all over the place with what's just happened, like the extreme weather case. And yeah, you know the extreme weather is another thing. But she doesn't mention uh, to the police that she saw her like running through the woods either. You know, she just sort of says no, she left. That was it. Yeah. Which made, I thought was straight added to the sort of dreamlike thing to it. Um, in the extreme weather, I, I meant to say when she was like in the taxi, as she's hailing that taxi, she hails it like a fucking idiot. Like she like <laughs> like walks straight out of the airport and like has a fucking breakdown uh, <laughs> in front of the first car she sees, and then gets in and it's all all right. But like it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe that's why the taxi driver is sort of pissed off. With her. Yeah, it's like another one of these fucking Americans. Yeah. <laughs> That was the other thing I was thinking was like the the taxi drive out there was probably expensive, and then so the taxi drive back into town is going to be more even more expensive, and she's going to have to probably pay for a hotel. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the other thing I was thinking. Like whenever she sees the girl running through the forest, why doesn't she like stop and offer her a lift, and they can share the taxi fare back? It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense <laughs> that she that she sees this girl by herself running through a really fucking scary forest in in a storm, and she's in a car on her way into the town and doesn't stop. To give her a lift, <laughs> do you not know reckon I if know. you guys uh, saw that you'd be going oh, fuck that? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, I'm like she's had a really fucking weird yeah. when she come out of there, <laughs> she's rambling about the secrets and stuff. I think I'm just gonna get in my taxi and go on. <laughs> it's, it's funny whenever Susie goes and sees uh, Madame Blanc uh, later on and tells her, "Oh, I I made out two words: secret and iris." Yeah, and then uh, I think Madame Blanc actually says, "Congratulations, you've done very well." Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, that's weird. So she phoned the police. Yeah. And then she says something along the lines of, uh, oh, I'm only surprised you left it, and then, like, answers the phone straight away. But it's, uh, I don't know, it's really, it was really badly done. It's really weird. Yeah. yeah like, I cut straight to the swimming pool. I'm only surprised that you waited so long before, oh, hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really weird. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that's the thing. I think sometimes when people are making films or any sort of drama, uh, like they sort of try to add in things that would genuinely happen, but it feels like it's not real once they do that. Mm. If that makes any sense. Like yeah. it just yeah. yeah, it comes across as really stupid. Yeah. I guess I was thinking, like, when you were saying, like, would you stop to pick up that girl? Like, probably no, but, like, in the rules of drama and cinema... Yes, you know, you, you should. Be a good but, smart. Yeah, people tend, in films, people tend to stop and offer people in distress lifts and stuff because that's, I guess that's what drives plot, but in real life, I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe, it, it depends on the situation, but there's a very good chance if I somebody have, saw somebody freaking out and running through a wood and I was a bit freaked out myself, I'd be like, I'm just gonna, we're just going to have our, our freak out separately and privately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, saying that, I noticed um, this time when I was watching it, whenever she's on the phone to, uh, you know, the young doctor, who plays played by uh, Udo Kier, 
Yeah. You know, um, Sarah's friend. When she's on the phone to him and they only show her side of the conversation, and normally whenever they only show one character's side of a phone conversation, it's fucking painful because they have to, you know, let the audience know what the other person's saying. So they go, did I go yeah. for a walk in the park? Yes, I did go for a walk in the park. <laughs> yeah. But if you watch that, she doesn't do that. It's actually one of the better yeah. one-sided telephone mm-hmm. conversations uh, in a film I've seen. It's actually quite good. Yeah. That guy, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Udo? I assume it's Ud- Udo Kier. Yeah, the, yeah, is he the human centipede guy? Um, uh, no. No? Who, am I, who is he? I've, I've seen him before. He is in Mark of the Devil, which was like a kind of... Um, another kind of video nasty type film based around people being tortured um, for, you know, being kind of accused of, of, of witchcraft. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I've seen it. I think I, I know about it. I may have seen it. I can't remember. It's got a really famous scene like... where like one of the a woman has like her tongue pulled out. You know, like it was, yeah. it was like it was banned in the eighties. You know, like like you know, like one of those films. Uh, I know what I recognise from uh, Blade. <laughs> Blade, <laughs> really? He's from Blade. Yeah, he's uh, one of the elders, I think, in Blade. Apparently, he's a priest in End of Days. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, definitely in some some other classic horror film um, that I can't think of at the moment. But uh, I was going to say though that scene uh, where she first meets him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, I, I sort of like it was sort of felt like it was kind of shoved in there for a bit of exposition on the background of the school for the ultimate revelation, I guess, in the end. But uh, just his little kind of speech about psychology and stuff and calling everybody that apparently believes in superstitions as a mental illness. He he just kind of rhymes off like the history of the uh, Helena Marcos and the and the dance academy. It's just this just like flawless history. That he just has in his in his brain. He just reels it off yeah. to Susie and tells her everything, and then introduces her to what do you call him, uh, Milnus or something. Yeah. Um, the other thing that he was in was is uh, Blood for Dracula, which is like another kind of like you know Andy Warhol film, one of the films that he um, uh, kind of endorsed, I think, in the seventies. The other one was that I'm thinking of is Flesh for Frankenstein, but I think they were both directed by Paul Morrison. And Blood for Dracula. Um, Stefania yeah. Cassini who plays Sarah. She's also in that. So that's another. That's, another nice link between the two of them and, and Suspiria um, and the uh, guy who, who follows like the old professor guy what's his name is it like Milanus or something uh, it is Milius. yeah Milius. yeah so the, the actor is called Rudolf Schindler and he is um, Carl in The Exorcist he's the um, they have two elderly housekeepers Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird because I, I heard that um, whenever Susie's talking to Professor Milius, it one of those scenes in which um, he was speaking German and she had to stop herself yeah. from laughing. But in The Exorcist, he speaks English. Yeah. Does. I don't think he says a lot in The Exorcist, though. He doesn't. I suppose he doesn't really. Doesn't he, he, like, strangles or the director guy for calling him a Nazi. And, uh, or not strangled, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> makes to strangle him. And he gets told to do things. He, he does say a few things, but it's not like... Yeah. He's not verbose. Like. I just thought it was really strange, like because it's, it just felt like a quite a, a large aesthetic break from the rest of the film. Because hmm. uh, yeah. I think even there's a bit where um, what do you call the the blind piano player? Is it Daniel? Yeah, the comedy yeah, blind guy. It's <laughs> it's like where, but, yeah, his death, um, even though it's outside, it still fits within the sort of aesthetic parameters of the yeah. the film that's already been set. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one just seems like a, just a typical, any typical film, like it's uh, just like the it's a bit half arsed. And I wonder, is it like 
is it a way to try and like ground it with reality or something? Um, Maybe, yeah. But it doesn't really do it so well. Like you could probably do without it. You know, yeah. Like all of those scenes, they probably don't really add very much. No, I mean it. It does give you a bit of bit of deeper explanation of of the history of the place, but like that could be the only thing it could maybe, or I felt it added apart from the background of the the school was maybe it gives the Susie like an out, or some the viewer. It's like someone on the outside that the mm. chicken call for help, which I suppose in a way she tries to. She uh, makes a really weird comment. Um, can't remember which 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 of them says it, but one of the professors says, "Oh, did that it." used to be or people used to say it was uh, Coven of Witches and Susie says something like no but I have a feeling someone told me or I already knew yeah that's right I, um, and I think it's referring to the night, the night before when Sarah tells you that when she's half passed out oh, I yeah. think I think that's what she was getting at <clears throat> she says like do you believe in witches or something like that yeah 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 you're right yeah she's like somebody might have told me that or something like it so what did you call the uh, piano player again I think he's called think Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. yeah. Um, see with him, well, the whole thing surrounding his death with the lead-up to it, uh, with the dog biting the small child. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, is there... I wasn't sure if there was a point to all that, or, like... Yeah, yeah. I don't know, because it seemed like it was... It seemed like it was brought along intentionally by the cook. Like, it, the cook's really staring at the dog, and, like, as if she's, like, got some... She's having some sort of... A, like psychic sort of conversation with it or something. Yeah. Uh, it seems like it's it her that that do, like gets into the dog and gets him to do it. But like, why? Uh, I suppose the only thing like I suppose it revealed was the um, ultimately his death. Uh, I suppose that sort of uh, demonic um, gargoyle that kind of disappears. Yeah, that's really weird, isn't it? But I suspect that's supposed to be the devil kind of thing, yeah. and tied into Helena Marcos. Maybe that's who that is, possibly. There's a, there's a similar scene in Inferno where it's basically implied by the camera angle that something is flying over one of the characters. I can't remember. Yeah. But I just remember that from the film. I don't know if maybe that's a running thing throughout. But yeah, I, yeah. I thought that was weird as well because you're like, well, like, where, where's this weird flying thing come from? Yeah. Mm. I guess witches are meant to fly, aren't they? So, like... Yeah. <laughs> It's really funny when he's in the uh, the uh, beer the beer hof in the uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, all the Bavarian dancers doing the traditional dancing. Yeah. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. Uh, did you know there's someone getting chucked out? No. Um, I think <laughs> it's it sort of pans towards the door and there's some fella that's dragging out. <laughs> oh really? Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, but like Paul, like what you were saying, you know, you, you were kind of saying um, you could um, replace all that exposition with you know, like she finds a book. Yeah, and that is what happens in Inferno. Like it starts off with yeah, isn't with, it? Yeah, like the character reads is reading about matter suspiriorum tenebrarum and matter whatever, uh-huh. um, and then she writes a letter to her brother, telling him about this book, and then his brother's friend goes to the library and finds the book and then starts reading it, and then she ultimately gets in trouble because someone catches her reading it and knows that she's kind of on about the witches and she ends up getting killed. But yeah. um, that kind of works a lot better, I think, in Inferno. You know, the, the classic trope of, you know, they find a really old book and they read about it. But it also brings mm-hmm. us on nicely to the whole thing behind, like, Thomas de Quincey's book. Was it called, like, Suspiria de Profundum or something like that? Something it like is that. something like that, yeah. Which is the, um, obviously... Uh, I actually never really made that connection before, actually. Yeah, no. Uh, obviously, anyone who doesn't know is, like, um, de Quincey was, like, a writer in the mid-19th century, or early 19th century. 
most famous book was uh, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, where he basically describes how you know, withdrawal symptoms after giving up opium and how he goes into like has all these like really weird nightmares and dreams and fantasies. And I think part like a subsection of that book was called uh, Suspiria de Profundis or something like that. And in it, he mentions that, brings up the idea of the three mothers, basically saying that there are three forms of suffering in the world. There's like darkness, tears, and sighs or sorrow. And that's where Argento got the idea from. Uh, and, and that's, ah, cool. I never really knew that. Yeah, and that's why it's a trilogy because Suspiria is obviously Mater Suspiriorum, like Mother of Sighs. Uh, Inferno is Mater Tenebrarum, Mother of Tears. And they were both done in the late 70s. And then, so it was like 2007 or something, Argento finished the uh, trilogy with the Mother of Tears, which I haven't seen, but my sister saw it at the time when it came out. And she said it was really, really bad, like to the point. Yeah, where, I heard it was really shit. Like people were just laughing the whole way through it because it was just so yeah. badly done, which is a shame. <laughs> Crazy it's day. I just mean size from the depths. Yeah, like that. I usually kind of turn to you for kind of literary references. Like, have you read? Like, I've I've read Confessions of an English Opium Eater, but I've never read the Suspiria de Profundis. Yeah, no, neither have I. Um, I remember sort of I remember studying uh, Opium Eater at, at university, but like. It was when we were studying Wordsworth and uh, Coleridge, and it was sort of glanced over. Like, um, was Wordsworth the one that liked daffodils? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the story goes: his sister actually liked daffodils, and she told him what to write, and he just sort of went, "All right," and we were done. And then she did all the work, and he did all the the flouncing. Which is a bit like Suspiria. Apparently, like Daria Nicolodi wrote most of it, and Aye, she's, yeah, she's, exactly. She's, she's completely <laughs> uncredited. Like it was her idea. She and she wrote the screenplay, and she's completely uncredited. Just yeah. fucking classic. So Argento definitely hits women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what a dick! Like, there's like a thing that you can notice because Daria Nicolodi's in like quite a lot of his films, um, and or maybe it's only like the three or four, but um, she's in she's in Deep Red, which is like I think '95. And yeah. when they filmed that, they were like married and in love, and um, they wrote it together and filmed it together. And um, Daria Nicolodi's character is really kind of happy and positive, and she's like, you know, really beautiful and all this kind of stuff. And then as his career goes on, he kind of gives her worse and worse rules until I think her maybe one of the last films she was in of his was called uh, Phenomena, starring a really, really young Jennifer Connolly and Donald Pleasance. Oh, actually. yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at the very, very end, Daria Nicolodi's character has her face slashed up by a monkey. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. <laughs> um, I was trying to read up on sort of the various like uh, feminist critiques of um, uh, Dario Argento, but I don't yeah. think I can really do them. Uh, just, but I think like one of them, uh, it's basically, it's, it's along the lines of the male gaze. So essentially Dario Argento is the, Obviously, he's the director, so everything that he sees is uh, kind of his fantasy, almost. Yeah. Uh, I think the word that was used, if I can remember, it was like a scopophilia, which is the sort of the fetish of watching other people get it on sort of thing. But as opposed within Suspiria, that obviously doesn't happen. But I think the the thing in the essay that maybe alluded to it was the manner of the death. So everybody that dies is uh, murdered with a phallic object, which seems to be... A lot of Dario Argento, it's well, always a knife or something. Or yeah, glass. yeah. But the, I thought it was interesting. I'm not sure they picked up on the essay, but I, when I later discovered that he is the one that usually does it himself, mm-hmm. and like it's always his hand, maybe adds to that uh, idea of some it, sort of weird yeah, neo fantasy. It does sort of see that does definitely 
cast more suspicion on him as a misogynist and uh, and coupled with that quote uh, from earlier yeah yeah i think that's probably the most damning of them of it all <laughs> there's very little doubt as to his uh his sort of underlying misogyny like so well sure maybe we'll take another wee break and um we'll listen we'll listen to uh udo Kier and Susie having their wee conversation outside the uh, the building, Aye. wherever it is. Cool. Yeah, that's the that's actually the BMW building and the BMW tower in Munich. That's right. I read that somewhere, which, which I've never mm. been to, but I've been to Munich mm. and it's it's nice from afar, but shaped like a car engine. Cool. Well, sure. We'll uh, we'll listen to this conversation about witches and then come back. Hi, Greg. Earlier in the nineteenth century, the Marcus woman had been expelled from several European countries. She seemed to have something about her which, which urged religious-thinking people to, to persecute her. She also wrote a number of books, and I read that, that among the initiated, she went by the name the Black Queen. After she settled down here, she became the subject of a lot of gossip. Nevertheless, she managed to put her hands on a great deal of money, and she founded the Tam Academy. At first, a sort of school of dance and occult sciences, but... That didn't last long, because in 1905, after being hounded and cursed at for ten years, Madame Marcus died in a fire. That's all there is, as far as witchcraft is concerned. There's a thing that happens in Suspiria, and I have never, ever been able to kind of properly work out what's actually bloody well going on, okay? Okay. <laughs> so, it's the bit where, af- after the maggots drop from the ceiling... They all get you know get the mattresses out in the big gym hall and they all um uh you know they're all sleeping basically together. Yeah. And Sarah creeps over to Susie and she starts talking about like where the staff go at night. Then she starts talking about the uh, directress and like about them saying that the directress wasn't there. But then that's that's the directress behind the, the sheet. Yeah. Yeah. And when she's saying this to to Susie. I would keep thinking, like, if I was Susie, I'd be thinking, well, so fucking what? Like, why Why is that a big deal, that the directress is sleeping over there, or that we don't know where the staff sleep? Like, she, she's saying it as if it's this, like, really sinister, massive revelation that changes everything. That's the directress behind the the thing? Yeah. It's like, well, so what? Like, the owner of the academy <laughs> is sleeping over there and snoring? So what? Who, like, who gives a fuck? Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, like, also, why is the directress sleeping there when she actually has a bed in... yeah. Yeah, if she is like Helena Marcus and she's, you know, like the Black Queen, why, yeah, like, why do they just have her sleeping out in the gym with all the rest of the girls? I mean, like, surely she doesn't give a fuck about the maggots. She's a witch. I know, yeah. Every time I watch that conversation between Sarah and Susie, I can't work out the point that Sarah is trying to make. Yeah. I just work out why she thinks it's it's significant that that, that the directors are sleeping over there. Yeah. (laughs) Who cares? It's a weird conversation, yeah. And I, I would have thought, like, the only thing I, I can think of, but um, I'm sort of thinking, like, that sort of thing, if it's, like, to, like, uh, young people and, like, say, the, the headmaster or headmistress is, like, sleeping behind a curtain in the gym with them, it'd be more of a playful thing. Like, they're, like, yeah. kind of, like, you know, have a bit of crack, make fart noises and stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe it's because she's already kind of terrified and stuff. Um, so she's a bit like, oh, <laughs> like yeah. not like nonsensical, but like, and even still, though, it doesn't really make any sense as to why she'd be in there. But yeah, I guess though, actually, is 
Is the idea that they've never seen the directors? So, so, yeah, the idea that she's sleeping there in such proximity when she's not meant to be there at all, like, it creates a sort of mystery. They've been told that she's away for two weeks, um, which is strange in itself. Uh, but they've been told that she's away, and uh, she's not there at all. So the fact that she is able to identify her as being there, then it's a slight sort of mystery yeah. after the, the sort of the weird horror they've they've had, possibly. But yeah, it is a strange scene. It doesn't yeah. really add up. There's another bit, um, well, not a bit, but, um, you know, like the, the guy, he clearly fancies Susie and brings over her stuff. Yeah. That doesn't really go anywhere. We don't really find out what happened. What I assumed he would be in the the sort of the final sort of scene with the incantation or whatever the fuck was going on. Yeah. But he's not. Do you know that, that he, he would maybe rescue her at the end or something like that? Yeah, or actually I thought he was sort of involved. I thought maybe he um, was like one of the, the witches. But yeah. um doesn't seem to be. Daniel, the blind guy, is, <laughs> is like he has only ever the actor has only ever seen blind people in cartoons and never in real life or somebody walks around with his like his nose like touching the sky like and uh yeah. you know it's like these ham fucking like oh my god where i've just been struck blind kind of motions with his cane like you know they're like fucking hammered and everywhere you know yeah. like blind people have like a method to their you know using the cane i gun you know they their guide dog gets them quite smoothly generally to where they need to go and then use their cane to like kind of you know follow their familiar footsteps and follow their familiar path um, in a way that causes at least sort of you know uh, I don't know like slapstick (laughs) this guy's just fucking like hammering all over the place like uh, whenever like Miss Tanner's leading him out the door and he's got a stick but all he's doing with his stick is keeping it completely upright and just hammering it on the floor yeah. Like he, doesn't, yeah. he doesn't have it yeah. out in front of him to see what's ahead of him. He's just like yeah. Yeah, yeah. hammering like it on the floor as he walks along. Mad rhythm. But... <laughs> um, I suppose we should actually also just briefly talk about the um, the final scene. It's pretty cool. Like whenever Sarah comes out of the uh, cupboard and she's dead, and she's just doing that horrible laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going that to is be good. death now. The living dead. And then the <laughs> like... yeah, actually, it probably could have done without the. The weird quip, you know. Yeah, you but, wanted uh, to kill Elena Marcos. You wanted to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, uh, but yeah, it's a good scene. She and, actually, uh, all it takes is one like what eighteen-year-old woman <laughs> to just stab yeah. her with a sharp object, and that—that's her death. Yeah, stab uh, at the air. Yeah, like they can't uh, even tell that she's looking at them. I mean, they're supposed to be witches, and she's standing like looking at them. I know. Yeah. yeah. It sort of had a bit of a feel of, uh, I think they do it in uh, Austin Powers, you know, when Seth Green's character says, why don't you just shoot him now, he's in front of you. Mm. Well, yeah. Like, come up with this big elaborate Yeah, <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, they could have just, like, got rid of her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like a lot of these movies, like, I sometimes figure they're having a lot of fun on set, and then eventually, like... The guy who owns the studio comes in and is like, right, lads, come on, fuck's sake, wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Michael J. Fox waiting out there to come in. Um, yeah, the, the other thing I noticed when I was watching it this time is, like, um, uh, on numerous occasions throughout the film, we we actually see the uh, the wall of Miss of Madame Blanc's room with the blue iris and actually imprinted on the wall underneath the blue iris is, like, a doorway 
which is obviously where the real doorway is. And to yeah. me, it's like watching it back, it's so glaringly obvious that the blue eye is yeah, there yeah. and that, that that must lead to a doorway or something. But I don't know whether or not it's that obvious when you're watching it for the first time. I'd, I'd forgotten um, since the last time. It was a long time ago, and I don't think I noticed it last night. Yeah, I sort of noticed the... I think, you know, when she's in the hallway, is this the same one you're talking about? Which is actually in, in uh, Madame Blanc's, you know, room, like her office. Oh, with the, yeah, like, is the, there's a big one, like a big massive one. Is that what you're talking about? No, it's, no, it's, the, it's the wee small one that she turns to open the door. Oh, the, uh, there's another one, I think, once she's in. Uh, you know, in the hallway at the start? Yeah. There's a big, like, massive blue... Uh, like rose, but it's. Uh, have you ever seen like, the Plantagenet roses? Yeah. Um. It's. Uh. It just. It looks like one of those, which is. Uh, I thought was quite strange. Um. If you Google it, you'll 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 seen it before, like a, a Plantagenet rose. Okay. But that's what it looked like anyway. Hmm. And I think they then once she once she gets into that, I can't remember in whose room it is, but there's like a a crystal bird with big feathers. Yeah. So yeah. a reference to the bird of the crystal plumage. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the first thing I thought when I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so does anything else to say about Suspiria? No, just like I could probably like do a whole a whole podcast talking about the the goblin contribution to it altogether because it's it's just phenomenal. The soundtrack is said it already, but it's like nothing nothing else I've ever heard before or since. Like I. It's. I'm pretty sure. I don't listen to a lot of death metal, but I'm pretty sure that it probably had quite a, an influence on like some key death metal artists. Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and there is yeah, the instrumentation in it is. It's really hard to even like pick out the instruments. They're like really just they're played. It's it's brilliant. They're they're a really really interesting band. Like the soundtrack itself is just it's chaos, but it's. It sounds like chaos, but it's obviously very, very carefully mm. put together, you know, and it would be it sounds like a fucking nightmare to play. Do you know the the, the sort of the music that's on uh, when she's being chased down hallways and things like that? It's uh, quite eastern almost. Uh, it sounds like a, a sound garden a song. There's one called "Hands All Over" from the first album. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It was just it sort of brought that back to me, like um, weirdly. Yeah. One of the tunes, um, it's like just a single string and an acoustic guitar, but it's really buzzy. Just going, yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. It's really weird, isn't it? (laughs) Sounds really cool. It is really Eastern European, yeah. Yeah. Is it time to do our um, marks out of 17, lads? Aye. D, do you want to go first? Uh, Sure. (laughs) So I don't know what to give it, uh, because I do really like it. Um, um, I'll go for... 14. Pretty good from D. Yeah. yeah. Uh, should I do my review thing as well? Yeah. Uh, I'll count you down, okay? So okay. You've got 14 seconds. Okay. So, three, two, one, go. So it's a bit light on the plot, but it's worth it alone for the aesthetic value and the intense like sort of atmosphere, use of colour, the music especially, and the sort of uh, hypnagogic quality of the the whole thing yeah that's pretty much it done nice one <laughs> uh, crazy P uh, I'm going to give it 13 I think hmm. right you've got 13 seconds um, okay. starting from now okay so judging aesthetic out of 5 which you give 5 it was judging soundtrack out of 5 5 as well uh, but then I was uh, docking points for the sort of misogynistic tone uh, so I gave that 1 
And then uh, dialogue two. Done. Nice. Like one out of five for its misogynistic tone. <laughs> one out of uh, one out of five for its uh, its sort of commentary. For <laughs> like, um, its co- commentary value. <laughs> yeah. I uh, under under time constraints, it's hard to <laughs> hard to relay exactly what I meant by that. Um, do either of you guys have a stopwatch? You can do mine. Uh, I do. For its intent, that's what I meant. Yeah. Uh, well, they have to like wipe that from the records because <laughs> could, yeah. could use that in your time. I, I think I gave Friday the Thirteenth seventeen out of seventeen. So, um, yeah, I'll I'll give uh, I'll give Suspiria Phil marks seventeen out of seventeen. Right, you got seventeen seconds to talk about it. Starting now. Uh, yeah, we've kind of said it all before. Um, it, the first time I saw it, it blew me away. Um, it's one of my favourite films. I'll keep coming back to it. it the colour. Um, I, I just love that kind of Italian feel of that time. Uh, really kind of uh, violent set pieces. Incredible music. Um, really yeah, exp- ah, Cool. You're done. There you go. Nice one. Cool. Um, well, hopefully the... Sorry, and just like before we move on, like we didn't like bring up the uh, the sort of blood-curdling end, like, you know, with the fire and the constant like screams of agony. That's brilliant, isn't oh, yeah. it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> like yeah. the constant screaming of the fire as the ah! credits are going up. And yeah, I, that's right. Yeah. I love how it says, like, you have been watching Suspiria. It, makes, it always makes you think of Dad's Army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I think of every time I watch you can watch it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it is weird. Uh, apparently, like um, Jessica Harper said, uh, like she she was actually scared when she was filming that scene because all the explosions were going off around her, and it was actually yeah, like real explosions and like the walls are really cracking and stuff. Yeah, oh, that's, that's a, another thing as well with because I think they said that on the the five facts thing, but the the other one they mentioned was the Helena Marcus actress. Was oh, supposedly yeah. a ninety-year-old prostitute. Mm. Yeah, uh, but then that... I, did, I didn't research that. I looked that up as well. I've seen that a couple of times. I've seen that used. Apparently, it was according to. Uh, apparently, that was the the chat on the set was it was um, a ninety-year-old former prostitute, oh, okay. which is uh, <laughs> slightly slightly different. <laughs> but uh, maybe she was a former prostitute. Uh, as of like the day of filming, you know, she may have been a prostitute up to the age of ninety, mm. which don't really understand the mechanics of that. But uh... <laughs> they didn't—they didn't really need to cast anyone from that for that role. I don't know why they bothered. Um, so our, our next episode, uh, my choice is um, Amando de Osorio's Tombs of the Blind Dead. Would it be on uh, YouTube or anything? Uh, it used to be on YouTube. I think it's it's a, a classic um, Spanish uh, zombie film, basically, but kind of like an early zombie film, um, early seventies, I think. And it's these kind of like blind skeletal zombies who ride on horseback, and they they can only get you if they could, like they can hear you breathing, so they can only get you, you know, by by listening to you and stuff. Really, really cool. There was like f- four four films made all together, uh, all by the same director, and all all in um, well set in Spain anyway. Most of them kind of filmed in Portugal because um, Franco's uh, Franco's kind of censorship laws meant like much of the Spanish the horror that was being produced in Spain during that period couldn't actually be filmed in Spain. Yeah, classic Franco. 
So yeah, with that, with that to look forward to. Um, have, have either of you guys seen any of the Blind Dead films? I yeah. think I have seen the first one <clears throat> with you, Ian. Oh no, D, you, you, you and I no, watched. I um, we, we watched Ghost Galleon. Uh, Ghost the, Galleon sounds amazing. Yeah, it's the third uh, uh, Blind Dead film. Uh, it's Ghost quite, Galleon wasn't relatively recent, was it? No, no, they were all made in yeah. like the seventies. Oh, it's also known as Horror of the Zombies. Yeah. Um, um, D, do you wanna do you wanna tell everyone to fuck off like you usually do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs>